This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show because I've got a killer conversation with Ben Hutchison, who's in the group Chemist, to share with you. The catalyst for the chat is due to the release of Deceiver, which is their new album for 2021, released through Nuclear Blast Records. It's an album that I must say I am enjoying rather a lot. Now, in addition to talking to Ben about his thoughts on the album, we cover a whole bunch of other subjects, such as his thoughts on giving up drinking alcohol. Probably best that I don't tell you what the rest is because, yeah, it's a surprise. Just enjoy it. It's a chat between me, a music fan, and also a musician and a filler at the centre of one of the most vital heavy metal outfits around today. So here he is, Ben Hutchison from Chemis. Hello. Good uh, Good morning from me, which is good afternoon to you. So how are you? I'm doing all right, my friend. Uh, just had a, a nice lunch with my wife downstairs, and now I'm here to speak with you. How, how's nice. stuff on your yeah, it's great. It's great. I, I like doing these because it's five o'clock in the morning here for me, mate, but they're perfect. You know why? Because I've got two young kids and uh, it gets me up and going and motivated and out and about. And, yeah. and provided you can deal with the with brutal morning opening sessions, and I can these days, I've trained myself to do it, mate. It's the best time of day to be having chats. Yeah. Uh, you know, one, one of the unexpected joys of getting older I've found is that I like mornings. Um, a thing that I never thought I would say, and a thing that I thought was always a very old person thing to say, yeah, but, uh, yeah, totally. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> there's, there's something, you know, there's something almost kind of magical about it. Like when you're up, um, and you know that it, like everyone else, you know, in your neighborhood or whatever is still sound asleep. It feels like you've got like, I don't know, like secret, uh, like a secret time all to yourself. Uh, it's, it's good stuff. The only, the only challenge, I suppose, is I still drink, you see. I don't drink heavily, but um, I do like to drink high-quality vodka, let's face it. And uh, that having a few bevies the night before doesn't exactly mix well with waking up at this time. So I only give myself Saturday nights these days. Yeah, I could, I could absolutely imagine uh, <laughs> when I was still drinking mornings. I mean, I think that's part of the reason that I never thought I would be a morning person is I drink heavily for a very, very long time. And I was like, well, you know, fuck, if I'm up till two o'clock in the morning drinking, why would I possibly try to get up at 7 a.m.? Well, if I don't stay up at two o'clock in the morning drinking, it's a lot easier to do that. How did you um, stop drinking? Um, <clears throat> in my case, I sort of hit... Uh, a point where I, I, I knew I was going to get sober anyway. I come from a very long line of very, uh, in a sense, successful alcoholics in the sense of uh, lots of people that drank heavily in, until they died. Um, so mm. I knew I, I knew that it was going to have to go sooner or later. And I realized sort of like in my early 30s, I guess, I was like, as you know, it, it it takes more and more booze to get me where I'm trying to go. And then that led to the question of well, where am I trying to go? And, you know, why am I drinking daily and why am I drinking so much? And then finally on my, um, I think it might've been my it was 32nd or 33rd birthday, uh, a few days before 
uh, my wife and I split a bottle of wine and I had one shot of tequila and I got up the next day and I felt like, I mean, every adage, you know, I felt like a truck had hit me. I felt like a bomb went off in my head. Mm. Like I didn't have that much and it was awful. And I, I couldn't get out of bed. And I was like, look, this is dumb. Why am I doing this? I don't, I don't even enjoy doing this anymore. It's time to try something else. So I, uh, I just quit. Um, I, I read um, this one book called um, This Naked Mind. It's okay. Uh, it was like, it told me a lot of stuff I already knew, some new mm. stuff, but um, I get sober um, because I knew that I was going to need to do it sooner or later. And I was like, if I'm not having fun, why am I doing this at all? Uh, you know, getting sober and then quitting my job as a teacher. And then, you know, last year, the pandemic hitting meant that uh, I didn't have to spend all that money that I used to spend on drugs and alcohol. They could do things like pay the rent and uh, keep the lights on. So, you know, fortuitous that I got sober when I did. Yeah, I, I can see, not that I have a problem, by the way, or that I, by drinking causes any issues, but uh, my father died young and he, he didn't drink a drop in his life, I've got to say. But that's the warning, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because. Yeah, exactly. See, my yeah. dad uh, died of um, a stroke uh, when he was 68, I think, 69. So not mm. super young, but. Um, and it was absolutely caused by lifestyle. Uh, you know, he drank heavily and, you know, much like myself was always, a, well, he was a fairly jovial drunk. I was always, everybody got real surprised when I quit drinking because they were like, you're always so much fun to be around. Like, you don't have to be like abusive to just still have a drinking problem. I just had a drinking problem. I wasn't trying to fight people. Uh, my mm -hmm. insides were just dying. Um and that was yes. a part of it too, is that like, I was already, you know, I'd had doctors say, Hey, your liver's working too hard. Hey, your stomach lining's kind of messed up. And, um, but of course, you know, everybody's path is their own. I have, you know, no interest in like preaching other people to get sober unless they like me realize they have a, you know, a substance abuse problem. And in that mm. case, qu quit drinking, quit doing drugs. But if you can do it responsibly, have at it, you know, uh, I, I certainly never look back on my time drinking or drugging um, with regret or anything because like I made some of my best friends, you know, from yeah. late nights at the bar or late nights at, you know, even just having people over and watching movies, whatever you stay up drinking and getting high or whatever. Um, you know, I, those people are all still dear friends of mine. Um, I just, now it's like, if they're going to have a drink, I'm going to have some, uh, some water or some, some tea or something. How did you find the first few shows were when you weren't drinking? Um, so I, I never really drank a whole lot before I played. Well, I won't say never. When I was in my like teens and early 20s, I did. I quit drinking before I went on stage years ago um, mm -hmm. because I just realized that I, I played better stone stone cold sober. And the first two or three shows of that, fucking terrifying. And then... After that, it was amazing because I was totally engaged. Going to see shows sober was a different thing. That was, 
I didn't know what to do with my hands because I was so used to having, you know, a drink or a beer in my hands. So used to having a, you know, a shot before the first band would play. Or, you know, if you see your buddies play, you buy them a shot after they have a really good set or things like that. So I had to... I had to reconfigure, you know, what I did like with my hands. I just got really used to making sure I had a cup of water, a bottle of water at all times. Um, but what was really interesting is I was worried that seeing music wouldn't move me the same way. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was terrified of it because music is, I mean, I guess this is kind of obvious to say I am a musician. So yes, music is important to me, but the, Closest I've ever felt to having, uh, you know, a religious epiphany was seeing neurosis for the first time. And I've told other people this before, but I felt like I saw the face of God that night and it changed my life. And I was scared that I wouldn't be able to access that sort of part of me that could connect with bands or with the show as a showgoer. And so one of the first um, yeah, I guess one of the first shows I went to when I got sober was Yob. One of my favorite bands, Mike is one of my favorite people. And I thought if, if I can't, if it doesn't speak to me, then I got to figure something out. We'll see. Sure enough, 30 minutes into their show, I'm just weeping openly. And I'm like, yep, still there, still got it. I can still feel the music. I don't need the booze to, to do that. Mm. Uh, so that was, that was wonderfully reassuring. Um, haven't been to a whole lot of shows uh, in the last 18 months. Well, I mean, I guess obviously it was last year, but, um, you know, I think I've been to one show this year that other than, you know, we played Psycho Las Vegas. So I saw some other bands there, but um, it hasn't been much of an issue since then, uh, both because I got used to not drinking and also because, you know, I haven't, hasn't been a whole lot of stuff going on. Hasn't been enough to, to tempt me to get out of the house and be in a, crowded sweaty room full of people inspiring stuff mate thanks a lot for sharing that and i think it's a journey that so many of us go on that reach near peak adulthood 30s and 40s i mean you know the providing years the peak earning years where so much responsibility is on us and we've still we're still expected to basically do and be everything at the same time and um i i truly do believe at some point in time those of us who do drink and yes I, i can drink heavily we do face that that uh our own selves stares back at us and asks us what the hell are we doing and it's whether or not we have a good answer to that is whether or not we can keep on drinking absolutely yeah i think that very well put um and you know sort of knowing not only knowing yourself but just being honest with yourself when you know those answers are maybe unpleasant ones um when I realized, you know, when my father died, I didn't stop drinking immediately. I think some people might assume that that would be it. And, or, you know, maybe unsurprisingly, I drank very heavily for quite a while after that, you know, because um, men, uh, especially I'm from the deep South originally. And, you know, the models of masculinity we're given are not ones about healing and recovery and emotions. They're ones where you take your feelings and you pound it down and you bury it. And, uh, in my case, you drown it with a lot of tequila, uh, and a lot of whiskey and lots of late nights. Um, but eventually I got to that point that you reference where, you know, you're, you're looking in the mirror literally or figuratively and you say, all right, 
I, I, I have to be honest with myself about what's going on and it's, it's time to make a change. And um, whatever that, that change, you know, and here we're talking about drugs and alcohol, but I mean, it can be any sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, any sort of necessary lifestyle change to just, uh, to just live life like you're supposed to and to pay more attention to the things that you need to and to be present in the, in the moment. Um, and, and like the idea of being present in the moment, I think is kind of, has become almost like a buzzword or a buzz phrase in American culture where totally. we like to say it, but we don't really think about what it means. But, you know, you realize that you have no control over the future. The future is what it is going to be. You can anticipate some things. Most of it's going to come at you, whether you see it coming or not. What you have control over is the moment now and the the joy you feel now and the the things you do with your, with your time um, rather than spending it all planning for a, an infinite series of eventualities that may or may not ever come to pass. So true. My God. Yeah. That's one of the smartest things anybody's ever said on the podcast, mate. I've got to tell you <laughs> that one right there. Cause don't, don't we just do that? Don't we all just do that? We all sort of, Think, okay, so if this outcome is possible, how do I plan for that? But there's a, there's a thousand of them, isn't there? And of course, there's that key word anxiety that builds up within us. Absolutely. Um, the it is not to say that you know you should just like let the the future come at you, you know, uh, without any expectation whatsoever. But you know, I'm reminded of the words of Alan Watts. Um, who who talked about the sort of folly of control the illusion of control and how we as humans think that we have control over so many things and in reality we have control over almost nothing and the things we do have control over are the things we never pay attention to we have control over how we spend our time and we have control over who we spend our time with but instead we waste our time trying to make plans about how to make more money and how to buy more stuff and how to have a bigger house and how to, you know, how to succeed at the expense of our own physical or emotional well-being or the well-being of other people. And, you know, at the end, we all get to the same finish line, you know, uh, you can either wind up on your deathbed surrounded by expensive wares and with large numbers in your bank account, and then you're still going to die. And then someone else is going to take that stuff. Or you can get to that finish line and you can have spent your time mindfully and trying to lessen the suffering in your own life and in other people's lives and to, you know, feel joy and share joy and to create something that is meaningful in your own life. Because either way, you're going to die. But one is a life that, to me at least, is much more worth living than the other. You get to the end of, the, of your life and, and all you have to show for it are material goods. I don't think you've lived. I think you've passed through. But you haven't done anything. You haven't spent the, the sort of um, cosmic lottery ticket that you won of existence in a, in a compelling way. There's a lot better ways to spend your time. And of course, with a caveat, that like, yeah, look, we all got to pay the bills. We all got, you know, yes, make sure you get enough money to go to the doctor. I, I'm not advocating that you, you know, everyone go out and live in the woods or anything. I'm not an outdoorsy guy at all. I would get eaten by a bear immediately if I went into the woods. But 
a life spent in pursuit of um, material wealth and prestige is uh, a life squandered. And that's that's a realization that I only had in the last year and a half or so. And it has uh, it continues to inform um, how I walk through this world and, and the things that I say. And, and hopefully I'm able to keep it in mind often enough that I can I can walk the walk that I talk. It's a good opportunity for me to pivot into the reason for our chat, actually, because, yeah, you are, you know, walking the talk as you described there. I mean, I mean doing what you do with your your role at your university is one thing, but then being part of a killer heavy metal outfit that does bring joy to people's lives is yet another thing because that has global reach. Okay. And this new album is called Deceiver. And uh, look, I'm fairly familiar with your work and I'd never expect you to remember these things, but we've had a chat in the past and it was a killer conversation. I think it was um, after you released Desolation or maybe one of the EPs. I can't recall now. But um, look, I was trying to find, you know, talk about superlatives and appropriate descriptors. I just think Deceiver is yet another wicked instalment in the saga that is the chemist catalogue. So all of the cuts on the album, they're over five minutes and there's a couple there that are over eight minutes. So this is music for the deep thinker. You certainly don't put this on in the background and go about what you do. It actually commands your attention. But you've dug deep into the riff vault. And you've thought hard about the arrangements too, not that you haven't done it in the past, but I I truly feel like as though you've nailed the arrangements this time around because everything feels like, (laughs) everything feels like it's where it's supposed to be. And that's hard to do over eight and a half minutes. So would you say that you refined what you did across Desolation on this album, Deceiver? Yeah, I, I think that, I think that Deceiver is the most fully realized chemist um, to, I mean, you know, I can, I can look back and say, Oh, well, you know, when we were writing um, desolation, you know, hindsight being what it was, we were thinking this, or we were thinking that, but I, I can say with absolute certainty that when it came to writing deceiver, we, for the first time knew that we weren't, listening to critics real or imagined as we were writing it when we were writing desolation you know hunted had done so much more than we ever expected one of our albums to do and so suddenly people were paying attention and although we've always had the approach of you know let's be honest with our music let's write the album we want to write we also knew that we had attention on us for the first time, you know, in a bigger setting. And, you know, given a few years of, you know, playing live um, after the release of Desolation and sort of maybe uh, growing comfortable and confident within uh, chemists as a band that people from around the world were listening to, we felt a particular kind of confidence that we knew what the heart of chemists is and we knew what chemists was about and it wasn't an easy realization to get there but over the course of these years coming to understand ourselves as part of this band we knew what we were about and so that meant we wanted to try to find these other ways of 
of still achieving that end goal of still creating an album that is a reflection of who we are as people of where we are in our lives of being honest musically and lyrically and also not having any sort of um anticipation about how other people might hear the album because if if you write an album and you're trying to write the album you think your fans want or you're trying to write the album you think the label wants or that anyone other than you wants you'll fail because there's no way you can know what's in other everybody else's hearts and minds and we know we knew and continue to know that our success as a band comes from just being honest and, and making this music that is us not trying to uh, placate anybody else's expectations but to just say this is who we are where we are and in the context of deceiver that means feeling comfortable embracing a more diverse array of influences that have always been there in more subtle ways you know you've got the um swedish melodic death metal um, influence that is very pronounced on a vernal gate or you know the midsection of living pyre or throughout obsidian crown and those elements have been there before but they've always been sort of reined in almost like we had an internal voice saying let's make sure we we keep it within the lines and you know it'd be easy to go too far the other way and it would be contrived if we said oh, okay well this will be a death metal song and this will be a trad metal song and that would be garbage that would not be good instead we just say this is what the song needs to be this is where this song or these songs or this album needs to take us and letting the songs be what they are and embracing you know, that that array of influences. And a lot of that really starts with um, when we first started the actual writing process for this album, I, I already had some riffs sort of cataloged and Zach heard the sort of main, um, you know, mellow death riff from Avernal Gate. And he said, I want to start here. And I think this needs to be our sort of philosophical starting point for the album like what does this mean because it is different from or at least it can be different um you know from what people have heard from us in the past but it's not you know unheard of it's you know if if he played a slow drum beat behind it it might sound like something from an earlier record but just not feeling like we needed to shroud it in any sort of um disguised that we didn't need to shy away from saying yeah this is you know this is our love letter to uh you know at the gates and dismember or this is our love letter to second wave black metal or yes this riff is absolutely us channeling judas priest and just letting it be that and trusting in ourselves individually and collectively enough to know that once we put these ideas through the chemist machine that it's going to come out sounding like it's supposed to that we have enough trust in and comfort with each other that nobody's going to bring um, second rate ideas and nobody's going to let second rate ideas through the filter that we're going to wind up with something that feels like an authentic reflection of us as a band. Great response. And it leans into my next point, which is that you seem to have made deceiver more of everything that that chemist is known for because it is heavier i'm so glad you talk about the new wave of swedish death metal uh 
element there, that 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 wonderful element that you bring in from at the gates and all of those killer Swedish bands from the 90s because you guys do it better than almost anybody else. Thank um, you. Thank you. But I, I like the other thing too is the drone passages, they hit harder. Okay, so you're talking about bands like Neurosis and Yob. I can definitely see it's not that you're doing what they do, but I can I can now hear the reference. I hadn't made that link previously. Sure. Um, and but the melodic introductions, they're just a touch more sinister. They're a touch more minor key, if you know what I'm saying. Sure. Um, so I guess my, my my question that I planned is kind of redundant, which is that if you recognize that you were do you were doing that, was it intentional? But from the perspective that when you were sitting down and writing and did yourself and, and Phil, do you actually talk about these things at length prior to actually picking up a guitar and strumming some chords and seeing what you can conjure? Sometimes. Um, sometimes we, I mean, we're generally going to start with a riff as it, that, that, you know, already exists as a starting point. Maybe you know, one of us has uh, demoed something out or brought it into the practice space. Um, and then, you know, sort of honing in on why this particular riff is speaking to us. Why is it, why does that feel like the starting place for a song? Um, and then we, we absolutely do talk about how the song should feel and what kind of journey it should take you on. And those all sound like really, you know, highfalutin ideas, but, it's it's important for us to make sure that we're on the same page not just the two of us but zach as well um zach doesn't play guitar but he hear these he hears these songs holistically and and thinks through them as compositions and so he has a, a great ear for when maybe a moment in a song needs to be more despondent or when a moment in a song needs to be more triumphant and Sometimes we have pretty, you know, clear language around that where we say, oh, you know, this needs to feel specifically like this. And sometimes it, it is a bit more vague where it's a matter of, you know, trying to find the right way to communicate a feeling to, you know, someone you're creating with. And, that you know, sometimes it takes a few drafts um, to get at it. But with Deceiver more than with any album we've ever done, we were intentional, not just intentional, we were very focused on how every element built into each, you know, previous and each ensuing element. And that included even, you know, the, the vocal patterns and the lyrics. Um, on previous albums, we would get the music together, write the songs, have them totally, you know, locked in place, and then start writing lyrics, and then start sort of layering vocals on top. And for this record, we were writing vocal patterns and vocal melodies and then shaping the songs around them as well. And, you know, there are a number of times where we found that those ideas helped us clarify what we were trying to do in the song, whether we were trying to. So, for instance, I can think um, I can think of a, a few examples here, um, like with my vocals, for instance, on the big sort of Death Doom Bridge and Shroud of Lethe. You know, the riff itself is very simple, but once I had my vocal patterns sort of in place, it changed a little bit how Zach was playing and he, you know, sort of spaced some stuff out a little bit more to give it more space rather than trying to fit the vocals around everything else that was in there. 
And that sort of attention to detail on this album is something that I think partly comes from the fact that, you know, we're coming up on 10 years as a band. So we have a pretty good understanding of one another. Um, But also we, you know, one of the, if you will, silver linings of being in quarantine for so long is we were writing these songs remotely while we were getting ideas together. We, the bulk of the like sort of, uh, carving the diamond out of the rough, if you will, um, happened once we were all able to get back in the same room, um, I guess like end of summer, early fall last year. But as we were demoing these ideas out and Phil and I were learned how to use guitar pro so we could tab these things out, send them back and forth, which allowed for us to edit each other's ideas in a really interesting way. So instead of saying, I like that riff, but I hate this one note, go change this one note. You know, you could look at the riff, change that note and say, ah, what about this? So we got to be a lot more analytical about it, which, again, just gave us this body of raw material so that when we were in the room together, we could have the clearest idea of where we were trying to take these ideas, where we were trying to make these songs have certain kinds of emotions where we wanted it to be sad or dark or uplifting but then how we could really humanize that, you know, in the room together. Cause it's one thing to, you know, play along to a, a MIDI backing track of a song. And it is an entirely different thing to have a couple of amplifiers, you know, cranked and Zach's bashing at the drums and really, really feeling it out and really, you know, working out how it feels when it comes through your fingertips and when you're singing and screaming along. Yeah. So true. I'm a muso too. And uh, that last point there, feeling the music it's no longer intellectual it's an emotional experience at that point there and that often is the best guide i think isn't it and i can hear what i can hear how you've done that actually this time around because i've had quite a few listens to Siva. it's a killer album man by the way I just thank you so much that, you know i love what you guys do you know you know one of the key things that i love about you guys is having these sort of conversations but i even spoke to phil many years ago and i was talking about the lyrics and he very kindly sent me through some lyric sheets because he could tell that I was interested. It's that connection that you want to make with people and yeah. that, that refining the quality that you've got there. That's I mean, that's what helps you reach and as a bridge to people. Yeah. You know, like um, we played uh, at Psycho Las Vegas a couple of weeks, uh, two months ago, what, however time works at this point, sometime <laughs> in the last few months, um, and, you know, it's the first time we've been on stage in two years and being on stage, like so many other parts of life, it's easy to take for granted. And I have known for a long time how important it is to me. And so having it not only absent from my life for almost two years, but, you know, there was a serious stretch where we were genuinely not sure if live music, you know, on the smaller, you know, indie club kind of scale was going to come back in America and around the world. Are all these venues going to shut down? What's going to happen? And when I stepped out on that stage and, you know, there's, I guess there's about 2000 people in that room and they start, you know, screaming and and throwing up the horns and stuff. And I, I felt that chill. I felt that power. And that's my church. You know, that is, that's where, I feel connected to other people in a way that that is unlike anything else in this world. And I feel privileged to be able to do that, to 
put these albums out and to get on stage and to do this and to, you know, to, to, to share some part of ourselves with people. And at the same time to also remember that, you know, live music, heavy metal in general is fun. You know, life is full of pain and suffering and darkness and let's have fun when we can let's find joy when we can. And I got to say, being on that stage, you know, up there with my brothers and, and seeing these people, even with the masks on, I could tell people were singing along because they were singing along so emphatically. Like that is, that is what it's all about to me. And so I really appreciate you saying that, it, you know, what we do resonates with you. Um, I feel very fortunate to, uh, to be able to create art that, that speaks to other people's experiences. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nicely put too. Now, now throughout our last conversation too, you made some keen observations on the social and political landscape at the time, but I can't recall whether we made that link to your lyrical themes or not. So a lot has happened in the last two and three years on a global political and social uh, landscape. It's just shifted COVID, uh, the Trump presidency, Biden coming in, the, the rise of an aggressive China, these sorts of things. Do they inform your lyrical content? Uh, yes, but not in a, not in like a sort of, uh, like punk rock kind of way. Like we're never going to write a song that's like, you know, down, down with, uh, the U S government, uh, you know, burn down Walmart or anything like that. And, I, and that's not a knock against, you know, punk bands or, or sociopolitically oriented bands. Uh, that's just, you know, ours is a little bit more, uh, cloaked in metaphor, I'll say, but with this album more so than with any other album, I don't think you have to dig that deep to see the relationship between the just dumpster fire that the world is and the, the way that it shapes not only our sort of worldview, but just the relationship between your individual sense of belonging and worth and your hopefulness or hopelessness about the human condition when you are seeing the things that you see around the world. Um, you know, the last, the last two years have been hard last four years. I mean, I, you know, I think going back to our, our early discussion about getting older, there's something too about getting older where you realize like, Oh, it's always kind of been bad. Like, um, this just happens to be <laughs> the terrible moments that our generation is living through, but it's always bad. And that's not to downplay the seriousness of it all, but it, it sort of, it can do one of two things. And, and in my life, it, it actually did both of these things. It can, it can crush you and it can make you feel so hopeless and make you feel so disconnected from yourself and from the world that you lose all interest in, in life that mm -hmm. um, I, you know, the, the sociopolitical landscape and the, the initial effects of quarantine combined with, you know, in my case, undiagnosed and untreated mental illness uh, was really, really bad and really dangerous. Um, but through professional help and medication and an, an amazing wife who has been very supportive, I find myself in a very different place where the world is still on fire and, and like politicians still corrupt money still runs everything. Uh, war seemingly never ends, but I can't change any of that. What I can do 
is what I'm trying to do, which is to lessen my own suffering in the world and put something honest and compelling into the world that I know doesn't mean that war will end. It doesn't mean that the housing crisis in America will end, but maybe it can be part of a larger conversation. Maybe it can be part of a larger sort of paradigm shift where we all stop being so hyper-focused on grabbing every little piece that we can for ourselves and instead focus on being kind to ourselves and being human and recognizing that, um, you know, not to get too hippy dippy about it, but that the only people that are going to save us are ourselves. No single one of us is going to do it. But as long as we continue to um, feed the machine that divides us and that, um, you know, tells us that we need to work ourselves to the bone for $8 an hour and no insurance and food gets more expensive and healthcare is unavailable, but somehow we think that is normal. Um, I like to think that art is part of that cultural shift where we do see that together we have the ability to change things. Uh, and that's not to romanticize the idea of like, oh, we're all one people. Cause there's a lot of bad people doing a lot of bad stuff. I'm not going to say that's not the case. There's a lot of people that their heads are so far up there. I don't know if I can curse on this. So I'll say, but so. uh, go for it. Uh, people with their heads so far up their asses, um, either because they are blindly ignorant about how things work or they are maliciously ignorant about things, how things work, or perhaps worst of all, they are maliciously hyper aware and they have the money and the influence to continue to divide a population uh, by convincing them that they have um, less in common than they actually do. Um, again, I'm not going to be able to fix all those problems. No one person can. But I think that recognizing how those big picture uh, concerns affect all of our lives, I mean, it certainly manifests in our lyrics. And I think in the themes in our lyrics, uh, to sort of bring this back around to your question, just because we aren't explicitly talking about a political moment or a political regime doesn't mean that's not what's driving the song. It's just pulling the focus down a little bit because saying everything is bad is so broad and so difficult to grasp, but looking at how it affects one's heart, one's mind, uh, if you are so inclined, one's soul, that that's where people have a lot more power, a lot more agency. And that's where we realized we have more power and agency in our own lives. And we've tried to communicate that through uh, the lyrics, especially the brief moments of uh, sort of uh, positivity or somewhat being somewhat uplifting, maybe. Yep. A lot of insight there. Yeah, we, we certainly are living through interesting times. And I've personally had that thought a lot that you mentioned there that it's life is so long and so difficult for so many of us. And uh, it's almost like if you think it's long and difficult, meaning that if you're a person who just stops for a moment and looks around and looks at the contrast of the wonder that is nature, 
and then how despicable human nature can be at its very worst and how often that plays out. We've just seen the fall of Afghanistan yet again. And you think, I mean, Blind Freddy could have seen an interventionist war like that would lead to catastrophe regardless in that part of the world. But to see it actually play out, what we all, so many of us, no doubt you and I, so many people listening saw happening in 2001 and said, don't, no, no, don't, 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 don't. And then that happens. But then right on my doorstep here, just to contrast that, and I hope it's not an absurd point, but we've got the Great Barrier Reef, one of one of the true wonders of the, the not just the natural world, but the world in general. We live in a world with both, the, both these contrasting things. And it's a lot for us as conscious entities, as sentient beings to take in and to wonder how do we process all of this stuff here? And, and I've got to say, Music is a great way to do that. And even deeper than that, your music is a great way to make sense of that because we have to have something that takes us to a better place. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'll never claim to be the most enlightened guy in the room or the smartest guy in the room, but I do think that one of the, I, I, I don't just think this, I know that one of the things that I am most grateful for is the, um, the perspective that being in chemists and being in chemists in the context of the last two years has afforded me of being able to see the, the importance of music in, in everyone's lives, especially in my life. I mean, in a sense, writing and recording this album is another chapter in the book called How Music Saved My Life. But in another sense, this is its own book called How Music Saved My Life. And I, you know, I don't think that any one artist or any one body of work is going to be universally um, uh, able to produce that same experience, but it doesn't need to be. That's why we have different kinds of music. That's why we have different kinds of art. And one of the things that I, I really... I hope for, and I think is absolutely necessary for the continuation of the the human race is for us to rediscover broadly why art has always been such a big part of our lives and what art does to reflect the world back to us, what art does to give us something to aspire to, what art does to remind us, and this is certainly the case with with our music, I, I hope at least, to remind us that we're not alone that everything is is so overwhelming so often and it can be so easy to to feel hopeless and that's okay it's okay to feel hopeless it's okay to feel overwhelmed when you recognize you're not the only one that feels that way when you recognize that when you put on whatever album maybe it's deceiver or or you know whatever this this piece of of heavy metal is and you know that it's spoken to other people in that same way it's a reminder that we are capable of more. And I think that art at its best has always provided us those things. And there's been a shift in the last 150 years or so, especially not exclusively in America, but America's got it real bad, but the denigration of art as a whole and the uh, sort of um, reduction of art to only an economic product if it can't be bought or sold and it is of no use is a terrible mentality to have. And yet when people pursue a career in the arts in America, uh, and again, throughout the world as well, 
they're told that, uh, you know, they need to grow up, they need to get a real job. They, you know, that's the kind of thing you can do for a hobby, but it, it doesn't matter. And it's like, kiss my ass. Like being an investment banker doesn't matter. You know, so true. Like, so glad you be, said being, that. Being the, the city mayor doesn't matter. Like mayors can do some good, but let's be honest, they're not even making the right decisions most of the time. You know, like, like what even is an investment maker? What's a hedge fund manager? I don't even know what a hedge fund is, but it's not making the world better. You're not giving people hope. You're with hedge fund managers, you're exploiting one way or another a, a system predicated on um you know predatory practices for the working masses and you're just taking and taking art does so much more and art you know to go back to that moment on stage at psycho las vegas i i felt i almost felt like um like a balloon man who was suddenly reinflated. Like there was this part of me, this dimension of me that I'd almost forgotten existed. And it's not just about being on stage. It's about being part of creating art because a show is only a show because the crowd and the band are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and that's, that's the beauty of art. That's, that's what, what art does for us. It reflects these things back to us. It gives us hope. It, it, it soothes pain. Uh, it does all of these things. And uh, we as a species have got to, we got to, I mean, we got to get it together in a lot of ways, but the, the, the importance of art across the board and for nearly innumerable reasons uh, has to be rediscovered and embraced or else we are, uh, we're screwed. I've long said, mate, and your comments echo this sentiment that fuck the bankers and the greedy, the the the, the career politicians. If it's not for the the musicians, the actors, the acrobats, the weirdos, the vagrants, the poets, even if I can say, courtesy of our of our conversation up top, the drinkers, mate, and the smokers. Okay. We are the ones that are taking the world forward. The reason why? Because we are thinking thoughts that are yet to be conjured and then trying to make sense of them through our art, okay? And, and you talk about hedge fund traders and all of these speculative traders. I mean, the fact that there exist products out there in financial markets where people are gambling with our money on whether or not a stock will increase or decrease in value and are making money on that trade regardless of the outcome is absolutely fucking psychopathic. I just simply can't understand as human beings why people engage in that behaviour and then sit back and think that they've achieved absolutely anything but are adding to complete misery. Yeah, it, it boggles the mind. You know, I try, in my best moments, I'll say, I try to retain a level of empathy where I acknowledge that I, I can't imagine a lot of lives but that I can appreciate that they have their own journey but that only carries you so far. And there are people who, for whatever reason, wind up in such inhumane and, and predatory lines of quote unquote work mm -hmm. that, that their impact on the world is that of a parasite. Um, in terms of, I mean, in, in every way, it's their effect on the sort of collective psyche, their impact on the natural world and the, incessant devouring of natural resources for i mean even if there was a good reason the rate at which we consume these things is is unacceptable 
but just the just the cold-hearted greedy wastefulness with which some people go through this world and then think that that is not only think that, that is normal but somehow put this message into the cultural discourse and here i mean we can even tie this back to deceiver this idea of we receive this onslaught of cultural messages about what life is supposed to be and what what you and i are supposed to be and it's all bullshit and all it does is convince us to accept our lot in life and to to embrace the suffering that is inherent to existence and to fetishize it. Uh, I mean, I can't help but but think about the image of uh, um, at the beginning of Oliver Twist and he's like, please, sir, may I have some more? But in the bowl, instead of gruel, it's just fucking suffering. And the idea that if you eat enough of that shit, eventually you deserve to be happy. And what a fucked up way to see the world, to think that you need to hurt and you need to hurt other people and that your success at the expense of other people's well-being is somehow valid is is detestable and horrifying and is something that um the world could absolutely do without and anything we can do as as artists or just as people to to show the folly of that way and to show that there are a lot of ways to find joy and love in this world and that greed at the expense of your fellow human is not one of them, then we're doing the, the good work and we're, we're making a difference, however small it might seem, to combat that narcissistic bullshit. Yeah, you are doing it in that way. And, I, and I've long said it, mate, it's God's work, okay, uh, what yeah, you're doing. Yeah. It truly is. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, anything, you know, anything I can do uh, with my life that, that, you know, begets more kindness and love, the kindness and love that I'm still learning to, you know, show myself. Um, I like to think that that's why I'm supposed to be here. And uh, hopefully that, you know, that in turn encourages more people to, to find that love first for themselves and then for the people around them. Cause I, and I hate to say this, but, you know, the Beatles were right about a lot of stuff. Money can't <laughs> buy you love. Um, you know, all of, all of the stuff in the world that matters is not the stuff you can get at the store. Um, God, I hate saying the Beatles were right. <laughs> no, I'm with you. Don't worry. I mean, yeah, John Lennon wasn't exactly the nicest human being. God, look at his relationship with poor old Julian there. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Beatles. I've been doing a deep deep dive on John Yeah, and, and he's a he's a very complex man. Was a very complex man. Yeah, it's I, I don't I grew up uh, my my old man liked some of their stuff. He was never like a huge fan, but uh, they were one of the bands that he liked that I never came around on. Um, a lot of other bands like Steely Dan was my dad's favorite band. They are also now my favorite band. Love mm -hmm. Steely Dan. But the Beatles, and, and I think part of it is that, you know, even in the sort of pre-internet age uh, that I came up in, well, it, it, and you as well, you know, like we didn't have access to like everybody's uh, biographies and, and like 10 different biographies at all times. But even then, like his reputation as being, shall we say, less than saintly was something that even in Mississippi we knew. 
You know, mm-hmm. it was like this, this guy's kind of a ding dong, um, which may have also informed why I didn't like the Beatles. Cause I knew I was like, this guy kind of sucks. Um, Big song, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, who, to whatever extent he was responsible for it, some of their songs, you know, they had the right message. He may, he may have been a ding dong was singing those songs, but uh, you know, might've still been getting the right message across every now and then. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Hey, look, I'll make this my final question for you, and I'm going to end on a lighter note if that's okay, because I've got to be up front and say that I've long felt that Smooth by Carlos Santana and Rob Thomas is a candidate for one of the worst songs ever written, but somehow you've redeemed it. You've done it. (laughs) I've had to rethink my take on it because you've covered it and you've improved it. How'd you do it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I didn't, I didn't expect that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, one of the, the things that I did during quarantine was, um, I mean, you know, writing the chemist album and all that, but I was like, I have all this time. Like, what can I do? And I'd, I'd had the idea of, um, you know, taking songs that I, I hesitate to say like songs that suck because like that's super subjective, but also that song does suck. Um, but songs that maybe I wasn't a fan of, but that had become popular all the same and to try to like reverse engineer it, right? That like these songs were successful for some reason and we can be real cynical and say oh it's marketing oh it's this sure but like there's something to it and so what i started doing was taking these songs you know these sort of pop radio songs that i'd heard when i was you know a kid or a teenager um and sort of deconstructing them and figuring out like as best i understand it what makes this song tick and a couple interesting things came of that one that song the reason that song i think the reason that song um had the success it did is it's that carlos santana lick like yeah it's a pop song otherwise and rob thomas was kind of you know uh, a hot item at the time but everyone knows the do 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 like it just sticks in your head and as i was thinking about this i was like you know if you play this at half speed it sounds like mournful congregation. It you get this like very atmospheric kind of doom hook, and so I dug deeper, and it turns out um, a lot of these pop songs are. I shouldn't sound this surprised, but like the instrumentation in them is amazing. Like the the chords that the piano and acoustic guitar are playing in that Rob Thomas and Santana song are just incredible. Like latin jazz chord progressions lots Mm. of sevenths lots of ninths and you know by and large in metal we play power chords you know um in chemists we've we've always tried to play bigger more interesting chords but even then like we're not music theory guys we don't sit there and go "Mm, well you know if you're going to add the uh the 13th here then it can't resolve back down to the tonic you know it's there's a lot of trusting your gut when we write songs but it was really fun because you know every now and then i like to nerd out on the theory of of music um uh composition and, and and sort of how harmonies are constructed and things like that and so I really had a, a lot of fun figuring out how to like arrange these horn and um, piano uh, parts for distorted electric guitar. 
And then what I wound up with was this, I don't know how long it came out being like maybe six, seven minute funeral doom song. And then suddenly the, um, the lyrics take on this really dark sort of tone where instead of it just being the sort of upbeat, uh, Hey girl, I love you kind of song. It has this longing to it that is a little bit sinister. Uh, and, and not all the lyrics sort of work this way. Like there's the one line, where something like uh, he, you hear my wit- rhythm on the radio, and I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know about that. And so I changed some of the lyrics. I, I can't remember what I changed that one to. I think I, uh, you hear my screaming from hell below or something like that. Um, but it it wound up sort of getting the ball rolling for me to try to do this with more songs from the '90s. So um, I spent quite a while with that that. Uh, Santana song and then a couple months later I put out a cover of uh, Come Out and Play by The Offspring but I turned it into like a sort of Misery Index Napalm Death like sort of death grind song Um, and you know by the time I got that one out we were getting ready to hit the studio but so it's funny you bring this up because I actually have about a half dozen that I have arranged that um once we're out of the sort of pre-album coming out PR cycle, I'm going to start putting them out again, probably early next year. But uh, I've got some real wild ones I, uh, that I've worked up. I've got, uh, I won't give them all away, but I do have a, um, um, I've got Eagle Eye Cherry. Um, Vibe to not. Yep. Uh, that one went in a real weird direction. <laughs> I've got a cover of, uh, uh, in the meantime, by Space Hog. Nice. And awesome. That one is what if Weed Eater had written the song in the meantime? Again, came out real weird. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is it's a fun way to still sort of work those creative muscles and have a little bit, bit of fun. Goes back to the point about heavy metal should always have that little bit of fun. The fun is more explicit, I think, when I'm like, you know, deconstructing 90s pop songs. But, um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun uh, and it gives me a chance to sort of play around with genres that I I don't normally get to uh, get to mess around with. Mate, I can't wait to hear them, actually. Yeah. Space Hog. Uh, in the meantime, great tune. I've, I've played covers. Uh, that's what I do on stage. I don't play originals music, but I play covers and uh, God knows how many times I've played uh, Save Tonight, but it deserves to be fucked up. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, when I put it out, I'll give you a shout. and uh, I hope you get a kick out of it. <laughs> I will do, yeah. Mate, I'll wrap things up. All right, well, thanks very much again, and uh, God bless with everything, mate, and uh, congratulations on everything you've done so far. Hey, right on. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it so much. Uh, take care, and uh, hope to see you when we come through Australia. For sure, mate. No worries. Okay, catch ya. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed it. That was a conversation with Ben Hutchison from the group Chemist. If you love that conversation and you want to listen to many more just like it, go across to scarsandguitars.com where I started to post a lot more of the conversations at least since about June or July of this year. I had another website which was scarsandguitars.net and all I could do was put the Wooshka widget, attach that and you had to search for it, physically search for it. You couldn't actually you know, use magnifying glass, type in the name of the artist or the musician 
and search successfully. You couldn't do that with the last website, but with this one here, you can. Uh, I haven't uploaded all of the older episodes yet, so if you want them, go across to Scars and Guitars Wooshka, spelled W-H-O-O-S-H-K-A-A, and there is a search function there. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. If you could like, subscribe, share, and all of that bullshit, I'd appreciate it. Even better if you could leave a nice comment. Leave a nice comment, though. Not a bad one. Not a hateful one. There's too much vengeance and hate and dickhead behaviour in this world these days. So if you could leave a message of support, I'd appreciate it. So would Ben, no doubt. So that's it for now. Until next time, take care. Should have some pretty awesome interviews to post for you in the near future. Cheers.